Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly look at a rock album of the week by three lifelong friends, musicians, and rock fans. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at KISS, Music from the Elder, perhaps the most controversial KISS album of all time. Before we do that, we'd like to play a song or two um, that we've all been involved in to kind of let you know uh, what we've been doing or have done. So, John, what would you like to play? Uh, Johnny Blowtorch. It's apparently just got played on a radio station in England. So I'm like, you know, let's keep pushing that song until it's famous. Bravo. All right. such a great uh, you have such a great you know, knack for you know record production obviously you know some of that influence might have been bob ezrin and i think you've sort of nailed a lot of the bob ezrin production qualities on that song particularly the uh 
you know, the arrangement of the, the guitar layering and also the guitar solo. I think it's a really beautiful uh, arrangement and mix and production that you did. And I think it ties into our discussion today. Now you tell me you're a pig Living in a leaky house I don't buy it for a minute I'm remembering a man Who said there was life
right, who are you lately? And just as that was a great departure for Dame Fortune, the Elder was a huge departure for Kiss. Uh, they reunited with Destroyer producer Bob Ezrin, and uh, the original concept was they were going to get back to their hard rock roots and do a straight-ahead rock album, no disco, no pop. Um, that didn't end up happening. Bob Ezrin proposed to them, let's do a concept album. And uh, Gene and Paul, at least initially, uh, thought that was an interesting and intriguing idea. They came up with um, kind of a, a coming-of-age uh, hero story that's obviously very influenced by uh, Joseph Campbell and, and the myth of the hero um, and the, the concept of mystical beings of good that have uh, existed throughout all time called the Elder. Uh, in every age, they are called upon uh, to find a young champion to defeat the evil of that age. And, um, as, you know, as much as KISS is criticized for following trends or repeating themselves or taking the, the safe route, um, I don't think anybody was expecting a concept album from KISS, and certainly not this kind of a concept album. But if you think about it, uh, the, the roots of this kind of idea for KISS were all always there, right? I mean, they uh, were marketed as sort of larger-than-life real superheroes. In fact, Gene kind of pokes fun at that in the song Larger Than Life by sexualizing it. Um, in that interview I talked about last week, 1980, Gene, uh, you know, the, the interviewer says, oh, well, you guys are sort of clowns, right? You put up on, put makeup on. And he says, no, I don't think so, because clowns don't take themselves seriously. And we take ourselves seriously. He goes, I think if I had to look for a word, maybe I would say heroes. And um, so, you know, I think Gene, they talk about this album now in terms of, oh, well, we wanted to make a critically acclaimed album and show everybody that we could play and get some respect from the critics. You know, I'm not sure how much of that is is hindsight and, and, and them justifying what they wanted to do. I think they had hit a dead end in terms of uh, what they could do. I mean, they had tried to be as poppy as possible. You know, they had done X number of fuck me, suck me songs. And you know, just to keep themselves interested in what they were doing, I think they, they went to left field and came up with an idea that certainly to a guy like Gene Simmons, who was raised on comic books and science fiction and fantasy and horror, um, you know, was straight from the guy's heart. And I think they believed in it 100% until it went down in flames. And now they judge it based on the fact that it was not a commercial success. Yeah, the album always seems like a logical progression based on what they had done prior. You know, they had tried it, and it even almost is like a logical progression as in terms of like what a lot of bands were doing at that time, you know, becoming sort of more intellectualized, you know, pop bands were getting more smarter and they had been around now for seven or eight years. So they just, you know what I mean? They wanted to show that they had, you know, a thinking man side to it. Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, 
I think Destroyer was probably a couple of years ahead of its time. I think The Elder was maybe 15 years ahead of its time. Um, because symphonic metal, that wasn't a thing in 1981. You know, power metal, European metal uh, that, that, that tells long kind of fantasy-laden stories using heavy metal. Um, that all came after 1981, largely, you know. Um, the book Harry Potter came out in 1997 and, and became a huge cultural phenomena. The reason why I mentioned that is uh, at the Kiss auction, Mike and I were there and they mm -hmm. had a whole bunch of stuff uh, originally when, when it was first open to Kiss fans, uh, they let you handle everything. And I, I, I think they were naive <laughs> about KISS fans because uh, that only lasted a day or two before they were, realized people were like picking up guitars and playing them and putting on the costume pieces and, you know. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of it's my fault. I think I played every guitar that was in the room yeah. and the next day there were signs on every guitar saying, please do not touch the instruments. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I ruined it. You, it I'll was, take full blame. That's right. We'll, we'll pin that one you, on you, Mike. But the reason why I mention it is uh, one of the things that was auctioned off at the Elder, uh, I went at the auction, were um, some more detailed notes about the concept that Gene had uh, for the Elder. And it really goes, went into a lot of detail um, that the story was supposed to take place in present day and that there was a special school uh, that this kid was supposed to attend um, that, you know, was for people that might be the chosen one that might have special powers and things like that. And again, 1981, this is really the same foundation that something like Harry Potter was based on uh, mm -hmm. 15, 16 years later. Yeah, but you're also ignoring a lot of, I mean, at that time there was prog rock, there was Tommy, there was, you know what I mean? I mean, the 70s were sort of the golden age of concept albums. I mean, I don't, I mean, I see what you're saying in terms of the, the idea, but it also rings a little bit of Star Wars to me. And, and again, of Joseph Campbell's, you know, the story of the hero, you know what I mean? And stuff like that. So, I mean, don't, I mean, if you look at the Wikipedia article on this album, they actually call the elder art rock, progressive rock. You know, that's how it's actually labeled. Now, I'm not saying that that's Wikipedia knows what they're saying, but um, I, I I, mean, and I'm not doubting it. It is it is a good album, and I'm saying anything against it, but again, it, it almost seems like they've, we tried disco, we tried pop, we tried heavy metal, now we're going to try this, critic, you know, now we're going to try prog rock, you know, to some degree, or we're going to try and join this other, you know, type of music. And, and again, they're, they're trying on different costumes, you know, and I, I mean, I see what you're saying that, yeah, it does sound a lot like the Harry Potter novel, but it also, I mean, it also sounds like Jedi's and, you know, things like that. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I agree. that's the whole I thing agree. about the myth of the hero is that it's a mono myth, right? I mean, it's all the right. same story, uh, whether it's Star <laughs> Wars and Luke Skywalker or Jesus Christ or this 
orphan boy in, from the elder. It's all or Shrek or Shrek or whatever. <laughs> Shrek, you know. Shrek follows it perfectly. If you ever want to teach it in an English classroom, I recommend Shrek. Shrek. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, just real quickly, you know, you, you have the hero who is the, the young boy who is given a call that he initially refuses. And then he goes somewhere to another world and he becomes something greater than himself and he fights he seems to die to the outside world and then he comes back with a boom that he has found and it may be information or the ability to save society and generally speaking society rejects him they put jesus on the cross you know he has to fight mr blackwell and you know at, at the end of it good triumphs over evil um what's funny is that john and i were out one night and we ran into gene simmons and uh, we, he asked us to sit down and, and chat with him, which was amazing. And <laughs> we, uh, you know, I wanted to say something to him that would be memorable. And I said, you know, you're my hero, you and, and Joseph Campbell, who wrote the power of the, uh, the power of the myth and came up with mm -hmm. this whole heroic cycle idea. And he launched into this whole diatribe about, well, you do know that, uh, Joseph Campbell's anti-Semitic, don't you? And I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. I have lots of Jewish friends. I've always felt very welcome in, into the Jewish culture and felt very sensitive to anti-Semitism. And I read Joseph mm -hmm. Campbell extensively and never come across anything that he wrote <laughs> that was even rem like remotely anti-Semitic. You know, so wow. I, I didn't want to get into an argument with him about it. But at the same time, I was like, well, I don't think he is actually. If anything, maybe he's a little harsh uh, on Roman Catholicism because he was raised Catholic. You know, um, mm -hmm. and I know he had some problems when he went to India with the culture there, but I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't find anything. And 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 Gene launched into this whole uh, thing about, well, uh, you know, we can agree to disagree, but uh, the question is whether or not you disagree with him. Uh, an artist on one thing means you you cannot enjoy their art. So if if Wagner was a Nazi, does that mean I can't enjoy his music? And I would argue no. You know, and I said, uh, I said, oh, what? Okay. Well, that harkens right. Yeah, "White Buffalo" by Ted Nugent is one of the greatest songs in the world. Ted Nugent is a deplorable human being, but I still like "White Buffalo." You know what I mean, like, I yes, I don't know. So, well, let, let me say this uh, just to follow up on the uh, the subject matter of, of the rap. Um, I, I I agree with what John's saying as well, but I think Dave, in terms of uh, other, let's say other the wall um you know which is basically you know written about a guy who was sort of driven to insanity over the, you know, the death of his father and you know his period in terms of you know world war ii da 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 but then he had other concept records um i think Styx had done paradise theater at this point which is a loose concept um in terms of when you look at the songs because there are definitely songs on the paradise theater record that aren't really thematic to you know the idea of the concept itself same thing when it comes to um, Kilroy was here, which was a follow-up record that they did after Paradise Theater, which is also, again, a second concept record that they did. Yeah. I think what you're saying is maybe just the subject matter of The Elder was a little more in-depth in sort of following the role of the concept. Like, there isn't a song in this record that I think anyone could say is not 
um, in line with the concept itself. It doesn't stray from the theme at all. Whereas you know, there are other concept records, particularly the six records that, that do stray, you know, like half penny, two penny. I mean, does that really have anything to do with, you know, the Paradise Theater, you know, or Chicago or, or America? I don't, you know, it, it, it seems to me like other bands have strayed, whereas Kiss stayed the course with, with this record and then they didn't really stray from the theme itself. That's an interesting, and, interesting observation. And also, and also too, uh, and the last thing I'll say about that is this, I think the subject matter, like you said, if it was 15 years ahead of its time, you know, there weren't really a whole, I mean, there were, you know, sort of science fiction fantasy movies and, you know, made around this time. But when it comes to, you know, like you said, Harry Potter and things like that, that blossomed years later and became a huge, you know, there was a huge following for that kind of stuff. However, if you want to relate the subject matter to this record, then by all means was definitely ahead of its time in that way. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you think that Sticks, the, the two concepts albums by Sticks, had songs that didn't necessarily play into the concept. Because I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I mean, I, I could okay. see where you would say that. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at the, the whole history of, of how concept albums came about, it, it really comes down to the Who, Tommy. Uh, they needed a new full-length album, and they didn't have enough material, and they kind of used the idea of a concept album to stretch out the material and give them something to, you know, uh, not necessarily put in filler, but something to stretch it out and make a full album. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So, all right. all right, before we just uh, make general observations, because we can always get back to that, let's start uh, sure. going through song by song here. So we've, we've chosen to use the song order that the album was originally released in, which is not the intended song order uh, that Kiss wanted it to have. Um, so if you go to iTunes or whatever, uh, Spotify, uh, the current song order of music from the elder is has been changed to uh, what the original intent was, and the argument is that that kind of tells the story a little bit more clearly. I mean, I think that's somewhat true a little bit, but I think the story is vague enough that it doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, but anyhow, the version that we heard in 1981 kicked off with the Oath, written by Paul Stanley, Bob Ezrin, and Tony Powers. My note—I mean, I've got that it's a straight-ahead rocker. I love the. Uh, um, it's got kind of a neat little bass line going to it, but I like the—I like the—you know—I'm standing at the door, pounding my fist. You know what I mean, and stuff like that. I mean, it's definitely, yeah. It's—I guess I—if you read Paul Stanley's book, he talks about that the record company was like, you can't have this many slow songs before a. Uh, rockers so they put that right up in front to keep you know to grab everybody's attention um but yeah i have no it's a it's a great song i, I feel that it, it does kind of encompass the entire um album in terms of like all of all of its themes and that kind of stuff so i think it actually isn't necessarily a bad one to choose to go first but i know it wasn't intended to uh, for me, I'll say that I personally think, you know, comparing the two um, sequences, I think the you know, either the Japanese release sequence or the, you, know, you want to call it the remastered sequence that starts with uh, Fanfare and Just a Boy, that works better in terms of a storytelling perspective. Um, but I could see where, you know, when they when Kiss released this record in the U.S. in 1981, where they would want to have a strong, you know, rocking, quote-unquote, song like The Oath 
to start the record. So I think it, it, it works in, in that regard. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, Paul has, has said, you know, it, yes, you know, it's, it is Kiss, but it's token Kiss. I think he kind of downplays it a bit. And I think he downplays it because I think there's been talk about, you know, how connected he felt to the falsetto vocals in certain parts of the song. But then when you get to, you know, John, the point about, you know, the lyric, you know, pounding my fist, I mean, that's classic Paul Stanley vocals. Yes. You know, there's nothing, mm -hmm. you know, to be worried about there. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's interesting too, from a lyric standpoint, I mean, never did they mention the words, the oath in the lyrics, right? It's, that's not part of it. Good point. Um, but then again, overall, I mean, in terms of, you know, the riff, I, mean, I think it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a damn fine riff, you know. Which is badass. You got the, you know, the flat fifth in there. And then also too, I've mentioned that I love uh, bridges in, in, in songs and the bridge in this song is, this, this chord changes is so great. Yeah. And that's, you know, you know, who's writing, you know, chord structures like that? Um, that's my takeaway from the song. But I think, you know, it definitely, it fits in the theme. I think, it, you know, if, if they follow the, the Japanese uh, release sequence, it, 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 again, it, it's, it's better in terms of the story, storytelling point of view. But uh, nonetheless, I could see where the label or whoever said, you know, we need to start off this album with a strong track, and that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, I could totally see that because the, when I'm listening to it on, uh, the, uh, yeah, from iTunes, it definitely does feel like it drags a little bit in the beginning. I mean, I get the point of what they're trying to do, but still, yeah, I, I am going to see their reasoning behind it. And to compare that to other concept albums, I mean, if that's part of the discussion, I mean, look at um, The Wall. I think it starts with uh, In the Flesh, which is, a, you know, a great opening track to the record. If they started with something that was a little more you know, call artsy farts or whatever that, you know, people would have been like, what the hell am I getting into? Whereas with this, if you at least put the needle down and you got the oath happening, then you know you're kind of getting the kiss that you're used to. Right. But then it goes in yeah. a different direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a heavy song. I mean, that's one thing that I think people yeah. forget about The Elder is that, yes, it, it goes off into kind of art rock and, and, and there are mellow sections to it. But when it's heavy, it is as heavy as they have ever been. Um, it, it's interesting you guys mentioned the lyrics and stuff. The falsetto sure does not help one be able to understand the lyrics. Um, no. And I got the album as soon as it came out. My version did not come with the lyric sheet. It came with the, the clear plastic uh, cover. And I remember I had to order from Peter Arquette like a photocopy of the lyric sheet. Yes, it came, looked like that. Um, just to make out the words, because if there was ever a Kiss album in which it really would have been a good idea for them to make sure they included lyric sheets in the entire thing, it was mm -hmm. this album. Uh, yeah, that's weird that they wouldn't. It's the first really strong lyrical album that they do. You know what I mean? That they want to be proud of the lyrics and they don't send you a lyric sheet. Huh, interesting. Well, from what I've been able to read, I think maybe the first 50,000 copies had the lyric sheet in it. Okay. Which isn't a whole lot, but then again, this record, you know, supposedly didn't really, you know, make gold anyway, so there weren't that many uh, copies that were sold overall. Um, but can I also bring up another point too, just about the record itself and how surprising it was. When you look at the, just the packaging of it, yeah, you know, you've got sort of, you know, the Kiss logo in the corner, which they this this became a theme, you know, with records like this and Creatures and Lick It Up, yes, uh, putting the logo here and the title here. But what you didn't understand when you got the record was, you know, it's music from quote unquote the Elder, right, on the back, right. And then it lists, you know, all these other people that, you know, weren't in the band, Robert Christie, these are all the, you know, the background 
you know, narrative people in St. Robert's Choir, nowhere on the record does it say, you know, Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Frehley, Eric Carr. Not to mention, you know, I don't, I don't recall I'd ever seeing any hype stickers for the record where it said, here's the new record by Kiss featuring the song, insert song title. Mm -hmm. I mean, you didn't know if you were buying a soundtrack or what was going on. And at the time, I don't remember there being, you know, Dave and, and John, you, we've all read in the magazines like 16 and Hit Parader and Circus. I don't remember there being a whole lot of press about this record to say, this is the new record, this is what it's about, and here's where it is. It's coming out, go buy it. I just happened to walk into a record store in my hometown, Swissville, Pennsylvania, and this was on the shelf, and I didn't know what the hell it was. And I thought, well, it's got to be Kiss, and, you know, the logo's on there, so I took it home and listened to it. But, like, I, you know, it was almost like it, it came out of nowhere in terms of my, you know, following the band and, and their career. It was quite a surprise. I didn't know what the heck it was until I took it home and listened to it. That, that's really interesting that you say that because actually my introduction to the elder is from David, not from <laughs> the actual album. Like I didn't even know the album existed. Like I had uh, rock and roll over and, you know, so my, my collection of kiss was pretty spotty as a kid, but I still had, you know, a lot one and some other stuff. But um, when I first met David, David was like, yeah, nobody knows this album. This album is really good. It's like sort of their concept <laughs> album. And, but, you know, it was you that introduced me to the album. I had paid no attention that it even existed. And then it wound up, you know, just by sheer force of your enthusiasm, becoming one of my favorites as well. Um, but it definitely, like I said, I didn't even know it existed until I think you pointed out we would have been in maybe fifth grade. So probably 80, what's fifth grade? 12. So 82, something like that. Maybe a couple of years after the album had come out. Yeah. Yeah. It came out in 81. Yeah. A little background on myself. I think the reason why I uh, immediately resonated with the album is, you know, my dad uh, has a PhD in medieval literature, specializing in the Arthurian legends. So uh, he really raised me with a love of all that stuff. And you know, there was in the early 80s in pop culture, for whatever reason, there was kind of a renaissance of interest in King Arthur. The John Borman movie Excalibur came out. George Romero's Knight Riders came out. There were other uh, sword and sorcery movies, you know, B movies that, that came out and whatnot. And in, in some ways, I feel like The Elder is uh, as to Kiss as Knight Riders is to George Romero uh, because... Mm -hmm. They're both great works, but they are the mm. last works that anybody expected to be put out by those artists. And so I think they were never given their fair due in part because of that. Um, in terms mm. of publicity, uh, you know, there was a Paul Stanley was on the cover of Hit Parader. He, they did a cover story uh, about The Elder. And then, you know, there were a couple of follow up articles in the months that came after that. Um, okay. You know, part of the problem is they played this album for the record company and the record company initially hated it. Um, I think they didn't even want to release it. Um, so there are a couple of short ads for the album in which you see the record cover open up and there's kind of light inside the record cover and they um, kind of fade to the World Without Heroes video and play a few other excerpts. Um, Okay. But yeah, definitely the record company thought this was a wash before anything else, and they were not putting a lot of effort behind it. But we'll we'll get into that more as we as we go into okay. further songs. Um, 
You know, talking about the oath, I think the lyrics are really interesting. Through a dream, I have come to an ancient door lost in the mists. I have been there a hundred times or more, pounding my fists. Now inside, the fire of the ancient burns. A boy goes in and suddenly a man returns. And it's, it, it's hard to hear those lyrics and not think of the ritual of going to a kiss concert you know when you're in that liminal state between being a boy and a man and you go to this dark slightly dangerous place and see these larger than life beings before you that are making you feel things and saying things to you that uh transform you and at the same time couldn't come from your parents you know, if or if they did come from your parents, you wouldn't listen anyway, so it wouldn't matter. And, I, you know, in, in a way, I think it's it's a metaphor for that whole concert experience. You know, I would agree, and it's definitely a dangerous place. I mean, if you ever want to really, you know, give somebody a jolt, you know, that, that has never been to a KISS concert, take them to a KISS concert. In the first two, three explosions, they're running for the door. They're like, what the hell's going on here? You know, never mentioned the volume and the theatrics. So definitely, it's, if you, if you buy into it and you go to see it live, you know, it's, a whole different level compared to what you used to listen to on record or, or CD. So absolutely. Yeah. Never mentioned, never mind the fact that yes, they are larger than life and they're all obviously, you know, at least six foot or so tall and they look even bigger when they're in, in heels on in a live stage. So yeah, larger than life for sure. I agree, Dave. Yeah. So anything more about the oath? No, no, no. One of my favorites on the album. So yeah. yeah, me too. Me too. And one of the ones that not that they played anything from this album very much, but it was one of the three songs that they played on Fridays and uh, that they've, you know, played on the Kiss Cruise a couple of times. I actually saw it live on the Kiss Cruise and wow. it was uh, one of those heart stopping moments you know, <laughs> oh, where you just go, oh, my God, uh, that's amazing. So, okay, you know, good, actually, before we move on to the next song, let me bring up a point, too. This has been uh, discussed in, in a lot of different circles. Apparently, Ace wasn't happy with you, the, the direction of the record, and there was, you know, rumor that a lot of guitar work that he submitted, you know, was either deleted or put in the cutting room and da-da-da. Uh, one of the things I read was there's a suggestion that it was Paul Stanley playing the lead on, the lead solo on this song on the record. Uh, I don't know. I can't really tell. To me, it sounds like an Ace lick, but it sounds kind of like that Paul you know, sort of behind the beat, you know, a feel that he has with leads. Um, but when you look at the, the version that they played on Fridays, uh, the TV, uh, the TV series, um, you know, there is, there are, the, the solo section is extended by a few bars, uh, which means there might've been you know, more solos than they might've cut it down in the studio. But also Ace does some licks um, at the end in the live version that, you know, aren't on the studio version either. Okay. So maybe there is something to what Ace is saying about, guitar work, you know, that he submitted not being included on the song, debatable. Yeah, so I do have some insight into that. Um, so the way that this album was recorded is that Gene, Paul, and Eric mm -hmm. went up to Toronto to work with Bob. Um, their complaint about Bob was that Bob was in the midst of the peak of his cocaine addiction and very mm -hmm. frequently wouldn't answer the phone or bother to come into the studio. So they established this system of recording stuff, bouncing it down to a cassette, sending the cassettes to his house, and then Bob would write out notes to them. Um, and at, at some point they were so behind in the, in the overall production that Gene was recording in one studio, Paul was recording in another studio, and neither of them were particularly aware of what the other were doing 
um, Ace was recording his guitar work and his contributions at his own studio in Connecticut, Ace in the Hole, mm -hmm. and then sending these guys' tapes up to Toronto. Um, so it is likely that a lot of his stuff ended up on the cutting room floor. I've seen mm -hmm. some interviews with him where he talks about, you know, I've got all this stuff. I, I, I'm going to do my own box set. I'm going to put it out. Um, when you and I went to the most recent KISS convention in Los Angeles, I was talking to Big John Hart, the mm -hmm. um, famous KISS roadie, and he actually said that he has the tapes of all the Ace stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor from the elder and you know, that, that he, he's not giving it to anybody. And I, I said, well, okay, but what would it take to give it to me? And, uh, <laughs> like yeah, Every, everything has a price. That's right. right? That's right. Everybody yeah. has a price. And he said, well, you know, you wouldn't even be able to make sense of it. And I, and I said, Oh, Oh, no, I would. No, no. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know me very well, <laughs> but I would be able yeah. to make sense of it. Um, so, so, and then uh, in terms of Fridays, I haven't seen it myself, but I have read that there is footage of the band rehearsing uh, the songs the day of the show and footage of Paul teaching the solo to Ace like that Ooh. day. So oh. my guess is Paul plays it on the record and Ace played it live. I am, um, you know... There's there's a bunch of contradictory information on the internet about who played what on this album. You know, some people mm -hmm. say the bass on this is Gene. Some people say it's Bob Ezrin. Who knows? Hmm. You know, at, at that point too, if you look at the Fridays version, there's a lick that Gene does in the uh, the chorus where he emphasizes like the A, you know, like around the seventh fret of the bass, which is all technical talk. But that lick isn't on the studio album. But it's there, it, but it sounds like Gene when he plays it on, on you know, the, the TV airing, you know, live performance of the song. So was it an enhancement or something that, you know, he came up with on the fly? I don't know. I mean, it's funny because you think about it. There, there's really only one live performance that we have access to, which is the Friday's appearance. And it's three songs and that's it. We have no other documentation than playing these songs live other than Kiss on things like the Kiss Cruise. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Right. Because as we talked before, even when they did live appearances, they were lip syncing when they around solid yeah. gold, when they uh, did that uh, Italian show that Ace didn't show up for and they performed as a trio. And when they went down to Mexico, the album was doing so bad, they played songs from other albums. So, yeah. 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 I bring, bring one other point too about, you know, the, the process of working on this record, you know, this was, you know, you know I think in, in Kiss Army newsletters, it was going to be billed as, you know, this album's going to be, you know, the, the heaviest record they've ever done and da, 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 da. You know, but I guess at the time when they were working on other songs, which were like things like um, Nowhere to Run and, and Partners in Crime, I mean, you know, you can see where those songs don't fit into this record in terms of the theme. Yeah. You know, but are, are those songs, you know, we'll get into another discussion about this some other time, but those songs aren't necessarily the heaviest songs that you would expect from Kiss anyways. I think a song like The Oath, for example, that we're talking about now is much heavier yeah. than either one of those two songs were being considered as demos or to be included on the next Kiss record at this time. I agree. Yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to do a short um, podcast on the four original songs on Killers probably next yeah. next week. Um, yeah. So anyhow, all right. So fanfare. Not too much to say about this. I mean, obviously, if you're going to criticize this album for being pretentious, uh, the fact that they felt the need to include a fanfare of orchestral introduction establishing the theme of uh, you know 
the same melodic theme of just a boy or whatever yeah yeah i mean that's a fair yeah they play all the themes from the songs i mean it's it's like a regular it's like an opening of an orchestra where they introduce you to all the themes that they're going to revisit later yes in the in the in the in the album um my only take on fanfare is that uh it seems like they're reaching for the prog rock sound because it starts with trains coming in you know what i mean you hear sort of a machine and that's in um you know, 21st century Schizod Man, a, the John Anderson, Elias, a Sun Will, uh, whatever album that is. That seems to be a reoccurring sound in a lot of uh, albums. Yeah. Uh, particularly prog albums using the sound of a train coming into the station or whatever. So I don't, it's, it's, I, I'm sure it's Bob Ezrin or whoever actually probably built the soundscape together. I dig the Gregorian chants. You can never go wrong with Gregorian chants in it. So I actually don't mind it. Yeah, and to that point, John, I think some of that stuff is um, more prominent on either the Japanese LP release or also the remasters, because this uh, the version of Fanfare that um, is, is on you know the Japanese version and also the remaster, it's, it's longer. There's the chanting and the, you know, the sort of sound effects at the beginning okay. as well. Interesting. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to re-listen to that thing. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, but it, also, this is the Bob Ezra and Paul Stanley co-write, so Paul had some involvement in you know writing the music, because there aren't obviously any lyrics on it. Um, but I'll say this, you know, to me, I was always sort of intrigued by this when this album came out. I was probably, what, we were all like 10 or 11 years old, to the point where when I did one of my first shows with a, a, you know, a real live band um, in 1985, 86, we played a, a high school talent show. Um, and in order to, you know, sort of ease people into the fact that we're going to give them 15 minutes of Kiss songs and a drum solo and a guitar solo and get rocks thrown at us, we played Fanfare as the introduction to our set. Oh, that's <laughs> so, fantastic. We, yeah, which we, we tried to let people know, okay, this is the way this is going to go. And yeah, I still had the rock on my shelf over here that got thrown at me. I thought it was a piece of duct tape. Because <laughs> um, we, you know, we, we were allowed five minutes. We, we played 15 or 20 minutes. And then it was, you know, it, it, the cops came and it, it really got ugly. But anyhow, I, I, I like the fact that Fanfares is there. I think it fits with the record. Um, you know, I, again, too, when you think about this, you know, they, again, I really don't think they strayed from the theme of, of what the, the concept record was about. So in that case, it definitely ties into the record and it's necessary. But let me bring up another point too. Um, compare this to The Wall, right? So, you know, Pink Floyd, The Wall comes out, I think in 1979, the album yeah. that is. Right? This record comes out in 1981 and there, we'll get to maybe into this later, this, there's a script, this could have been a movie. The Wall movie didn't come out until 1982. So when I say, you know, when you buy the record, it says, you know, music from the elder, quote unquote, you know, is this the soundtrack to a movie that I missed? What is going on here? But I, now that I realize the same thing happened with Pink Floyd, whereas they released the record, but the movie that was such a hit wasn't until years later. Yeah. So had Kiss followed that path, who knows what would have happened. But with the point being, it's just very confusing from, you know, a customer standpoint, what am I buying here? What did I miss? If, if it's something that is a soundtrack to a record or a soundtrack to a movie, then how do I miss the movie? What's happening? It's just a little confusing. It is. And I think it, you know, to really sell this album, they would have needed to commit to it fully and they would have needed the record company behind them a hundred percent. They would have had to have designed and, and implemented and t done a full tour around it, which, you know, just in the last couple of years, uh, the ideas that they, that they had for the elder tour have become clearer and, you know, or out there on the net and whatnot, um, you know, perhaps released a novelization of the concept. 
um, mm-hmm. or a comic book. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things they could have done, I think, to further sell this as as a thing. But they, you know, the record company wasn't going to to help them, unfortunately. And I think that um, all of the things that they could have done to make this album a success just didn't happen. And we'll get into some more of that as we go through the rest of the songs. Sure. Okay. All right. So, Just a Boy. I like Paul's falsetto in it and the big crashing uh, power chords. I mean, it's, 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 it stands well. I mean, again, lyrically more clever than most of the stuff that Kiss has done. Uh, I, I, I dig it. I mean, it sets up the story pretty well. Um, I like it. I like it too. And I like the fact that um, on Paul Stanley's uh, 1989 solo tour, he would play bits of this song in, in his live set, you know, which is you know, such a treat, even though it might have been maybe not the most you know, sincere you know, tribute to, to the song. But, um, you know, again, it, it all fits within the theme of the record and it tells the story, but it goes from the, you know, the, the gentle sort of 12 string acoustic guitar minor chords into the, you know, the big chorus with the pick slides. And, you know, it's, it's dramatic mm-hmm. rock. It works for the record. I mean, if you, you know, I think it's been said that, you know, by, you know, Paul, like, it's a good record, but it's, it's not a good Kiss record, or, you know, it, it, it's, which, you know, debatable, it's a great record, nonetheless. If any of us had ever put out this kind of work, we'd be proud of it to a T. Oh, yeah. You know, this is an amazing record production-wise, mm-hmm. and, may, yeah, maybe the theme's a little hard to, you know, to bite into if, you know, if, if, if that's not your thing, but still, if you look at it just as a record and, and production value and songwriting, it's a great record. Yeah. I mean, lyrically, just the opening couplet, who steers the ship through the stormy sea? If hope is lost, then so are we. Yeah. Are, that's yeah, some that's of my good. favorite lyrics ever, you know, in any song. Um, yeah. You know, I, I do think the line about, uh, for I am just a boy, when they say too young to be sailing, I understand that that's extending the metaphor, perhaps, of the, the ship in the stormy sea. But, um, mm. But at the same time, that sort of hints at a part of the story that they don't really get into. You know, I think if there's a real fair criticism of this album, it is that the story is so vague that you, if you said, well, what exactly happens in the story? You'd be hard pressed to say because you're like, well, I don't know. Does he go sailing? You know, is he on a mm-hmm. top of a mountain at some point on a horse? Because they talk about that, you know. Um, but in a sense, the, because the album is so vague in terms of specifics in, in the actual plot of the album, it gives it a kind of universality, I think, that, that makes it effective in other ways. Well, think about this too, guys. Um, you know, and we'll get to the end of the record, but you know, when you get to the end of the record, there's an, you know, an evaluation of the boy and where he's going to go. Maybe, and this is debatable, Maybe the idea was to develop the story further and expand it when it comes to making a movie or, you know, developing, developing the script itself. Maybe this is supposed to be the tease and you sort of buy into it later. I don't know. Well, had The Elder been a success, there was supposed to be a follow-up album that was going to be called War of the Gods. And there was even some talk about making that a double album. So... Yes, I think we would have gotten to all of that eventually. And in fact, there's a bunch of demos floating around YouTube and stuff of unreleased Elder material um, that has some great music to it. I mean, if you just, I mean, some of those riffs and some of those guitar parts and, and, and song parts, it's a shame that uh, they've never used them for anything else because they're awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah it, it's it's you know again an, an interesting period with the band. I mean, they were obviously they had the you know we'll, we'll say they had the balls to to go in this direction and put this record out. I mean, that takes a lot of a lot of nerve. But then again, too, I think this is around the time of the the Polygram buyout of Casablanca, you know, which was you know the, the, their label at the time and maybe shifting priorities led to the fact that they're going to either shell this or not promote it. And it wasn't supported. And, you know, such a shame that that might've been the way it worked out. All right. Dark light, the sole Ace Fraley song on the album. My favorite thing is Ace's delivery of the world, a malevolent order. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Brooklyn accent because it makes it sound even more evil. Uh, it's got a little bit of a Jaws opening, like it sounds like the riff from, you know, the, the Jaws, the movie. You oh, know, it's the, totally the, Jaws, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the uh, the conga um, during the solo, it's a great solo, Like, but then when it slowly brings down, they bring in the conga or whatever, it's great. Now, was this written by Lou Reed, too? Or am I just Lou Reed, I think, up? had something to do with some of the lyrics, both in this and yeah, World Without I mean, Heroes. Yeah. Um, I yeah. Note that I actually wrote this down. Yeah, Gene is also listed as co-writer as well. So yeah, Ace, Gene, uh, the drummer, and Lou are all writers on this, and it is it is a great song. Um, I mean, I just the way again, I one of the things that this podcast has taught me is how much I love freaking Ace Frehley and Ace Frehley uh, songs. This is a great. He's fairly song. Just, just his delivery, his sort of like badassery as he delivers these lines and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's it's really cool. I dig it. In fact, I would say this is probably the last great Ace Fairly solo. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the solo is just fantastic. Yeah, it's as good as anything he's ever done. And again, he doesn't get into the thing where he's just, you know, playing, you know, ace licks and just rehashing that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it, this solo is blasting on this record. I mean, it, it's like, you know, meters peaking. It's loud. It's great. But, it, you know, it's so well executed and it's so ace. But I agree with you, John, too, where it's great how, you know, maybe ace didn't buy into the concept of the, you know, of the record itself. But he's still going to, you know, with some lyrical changes. Because I think this song had originally been uh, titled as... Um, don't run, I think. Right, Dave? Yes. The original demo, yeah. which is online, you can search for it on YouTube and whatnot. It was called Don't Run. And it was actually really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. This, I think, is actually a good argument for the fact that maybe Ace was right. And, you know, what Ace says about The Elder today is it's a great album, but it wasn't the right time to do it. And mm-hmm. it was so far ahead of its time, it's hard for, to argue with that assessment. Um, if they had gone in the straight ahead, back to our roots, hard rock heavy metal direction then this song could have been on the album as originally intended and maybe the most interesting lyric ace Frehley has ever written because it's kind of a proto-feminist song it's kind of written from the perspective of a guy who's my interpretation is he's talking to a teenage girl who's thinking about running away from home and his advice is don't run away from home. You need to stay and and face your problems. Um, you know, so, so some of the lyrics, I, I won't read the entire thing, uh, but you know, he, he says, so it's up to you, you got courage, girl, so use some of it. I don't mean like, you gotta be tough or something. Don't run, good things are at hand. Don't run. You've got to understand. Don't run, cause you're in command. 
Yeah, which is definitely yeah. telling a story. There's definitely a point of reference there, and you know who that is. You know, we won't know, but from a lyric standpoint, that that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's as good as yeah. anything he's ever written, and in in a sense, it's a shame that that version of the song never got put out or got its due because uh, it, you know, lyrically it's great, and musically it's essentially the same song. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting too that uh, this is uh, we mentioned we we discussed unmasked. The two of the songs that Ace had written for Unmasked were in an open G tuning, uh, which in this case is another open G tuning. And it's, um, well, there's my sound, you know, which is again the Keith Richards, you know, the, the G tuning, but interesting. So here's the, here's the chorus, right? Yeah. Okay, so that chorus structure is cool. And then, but listen to the chorus of Talk to Me. But then also the solo section in um, two sides of the coin. That's all the same chords in different orders. Yeah, but it's also you know, the same chord structure and it's also the same key. So three drastically different versions, or three drastically different songs um, with the same tuning in, in the same key. Um, you know, and it, to me, it's, it, it just goes to show that how thorough they are and how effective they are in, in writing songs. You know, you can have something that might be so simple as an open G tuning, but it's what you do that, that makes it different and unique. Well, um, I think you know, I think it's a good argument that him starting to experiment with alternate tunings really opened him, opened himself up creatively because, yeah. you know, as a guitar player, you generally speaking, your guitar is is tuned in a standard tuning or standard relative to itself if you're tuned down a half step or whole step but mm -hmm. your fingers tend to find the same patterns you tend to repeat yourself you you play the same chord progressions the same licks and i think sometimes something as simple as an alternate tuning like that can force you to rethink what you're doing and become conscious of it in a different way and and really opens you mm -hmm. up to new ideas just because your fingers might be doing the same things but it's going to sound a lot different because now it's different notes yeah and you make a lot of happy mistakes which will probably turn into great song ideas exactly right that's actually very funny i had a i was just jamming with someone a while ago and we were well we were trying to form a band i guess to the this same time last year which totally blew to pieces because of covid but uh I remember him doing something and I was doing so and I decided to do something different and he was like no no no, do that thing you're doing before and I was like that's the same thing I do in every song and it was like I know but I love it and I was like, but I do that all the time like that's my little go-to thing that I always fall back on and well so yeah. then it's a signature <laughs> right exactly now it's my signature cleverly disguised as a new idea right yeah right. yeah so yeah just deep sand or something I'm gonna start an urban legend here okay okay um you know, Mark Shakini from Three Sides says that nobody was really into The Elder when it came out and whatnot. We've already established that that's not true, that I, that I was. Um, but yeah. so, so was my friend, uh, and we, we watched Kiss when they were on Fridays, but we didn't, they repeated that episode a fair amount of times. Um, mm. He has always told me and maintained to me um, that the first time that episode was aired, Kiss played Dark Light. And he told me that 
at a certain point during the song, they turned out the lights in the audience. And when the lights came back on, Kiss was in the audience and like they shocked them, you know, and then they continued uh. playing the song. Now, did he dream that? Was he telling a lie? I don't know. I just know that mm. on the night of our senior graduation, I went <laughs> up to him and I said, listen, man, you got to level with me. It's okay if you were just telling a fib, trying to get one over on me. You know, I'm cool with that. It's a fun thing to do, right? But I need to know <laughs> once and for all, did you see that? Did it happen? And he maintained, he swore to me that this happened. I have never seen any other evidence of it. And I'm just going to throw it out there. It could be very well an urban legend, but there it is. Well, you know, I've never read or seen anything to, to verify that, but at the same time, too, uh, there was a story that uh, one of the audience members that attended that uh, filming uh, was Blackie Lawless. Yes, I think that is right? true, yeah. And I don't know if it was him or somebody else that claimed they were there, and he went over to you know, to, to the uh, sound crew to you know sort of ask for a souvenir, like a set list or something, and I, I believe it was a woman that said, well, here, you, you might like this, and it was a cassette copy of the sound check, which included the, the version of them playing the song I, that included the original lyrics, you know, and the balls to stand alone rather than, you know, and the guts to stand alone. Oh yeah, we'll get into so, that. <laughs> you know, yeah, but at the same time too, maybe they rehearsed it, maybe, you know, but then again, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I wasn't fortunate like you were to see it as it happened. I've, I had only seen it years later on in a bootleg, you know, VHS copy in, in the 90s. So yeah, I, I didn't see it at the time. I don't know. I wish I knew, but it'd be cool if, if they did. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, um, shall we move on to Only You? Sure. My favorite part about it is that he, Gene, first off, Gene uses a phalange effect on his bass, which was just becoming popular for basses at that time. Um, they were actually, at some point, from what I understand, they were actually building the effects into the actual instruments themselves rather than having pedals. Um, and I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true or not, if he had one of those, but I remember reading lots of artists in the, uh, 80s had gotten bass guitars that had little buttons that you could push that would turn on whatever effects. The other thing that I like is that the bass, the way that he uses it, it winds up sounding like a string section. Mm. You know what I mean? Like when he's following the vocal lead or whatever, it starts to kind of fall into almost like a string section thing. It mimics the vocals, but it also mm -hmm. sounds you know, a little bit of counterpoint here or there, a little different. Uh, and then the riff, you know, is a super cool uh, grinding riff, but I, the one thing that popped out to me was like the flange effect on the bass. I was like, oh wow, and I and like I, you know, as like a bass nerd, I had I'd heard that around 1980, 81, they were starting to add effects to bass guitars as well as you know regular guitars, uh, including that flange effect or whatever. So, so I, I totally, I, I love it. I guess this was the big. Was this the hit from it? I, no, it's not. Mm. Never mind. No, but it's definitely a good song. Mike. Yeah, on the subject of the bass tone, for sure, John, because I do believe that I don't think it was a, well, point being, okay, if the tie in here is Bob Ezra and, and Pink Floyd, uh, Pink Floyd definitely also used, uh, you know, flangers or, or phasers on their on their bass sound, sounds as well. Um, and, and for sure, there were companies like Electra and even Gibson were building, and Gretchen were building, you know, ph phasers and all kinds of sort of, you know, electronic things in guitars and basses at the time. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, which, I swear to God, they had yeah. it where the effects were literally built into the instrument. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a whole, whole yeah, thing, yeah, technology-wise. Yeah. Yeah, there's a picture of Chris Squire from Yes with um, era, drama era, 1980, where yeah. he's got this ridiculous-looking bass that has all these buttons on it that would do all of his weird little flange things to it. And I sometimes wonder, was he playing that type of bass at that time? Huh. So very well could have been. Yeah. Um, but interesting point about the song is, you know, this is a question to you guys. I remember reading something where Gene said he was, he always sort of got confused on this song and maybe he, it's because did he play rhythm guitar in this song? You know, but is the song, the main riff, is it in D minor or is it in D major or does it shift halfway through the verse from D minor to, to D major? Uh, why don't you play us an example of that? Okay. You know, mention that we got a guitar handy here. Let me plug it in. Sorry. All right, so. Volume is important. Okay, so you got. Okay, which doesn't really say D minor or D major, but then when it gets into the when he, like you said, John, he, the bass line follows the lyric. When it goes into the second part of the of the verse, it seems like it's implied that it's D major. Uh, wait, there's my sound. Yeah, but that sounds minor to me just on the listen. But okay. yeah. All right. You know, but it, I find it interesting because if Gene brought it up and he got confused playing it, then maybe it was something where, you know, maybe production-wise, Bob said, hey, okay, it's D minor there. It'd be really cool if you went to D major halfway through the verse to make it, you know, go to a different level. I don't know. Hmm, yeah, but yeah, I, I get confused because I can't figure it out because they don't really play the you know the, the defining minor major note would have been played in the high E string and they never really play the high E string on that riff. So you know it, 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 it's it's you know it, it's not really that, that they were point to make, but I just it, it, it seems like it's definitely a minor chord implied thing there. But you know I don't know. Yeah, I would say it's kind of yeah. kind of modal. I mean, almost you know like the Gregorian chants are sometimes. Ah. modal as well and and you know i'm and i think that's probably intentional because this is the first song where they're really kind of getting into the mystic aspect of it right if whether or yeah. not he is the chosen one um yeah and you know i love the fact too that there's the uh i guess it would be considered the pre-chorus where you got the you know the person sort of whispering in the person's ear like tell me the secret you know what a great yeah. vocal effect that is i mean that mm -hmm. is that's badass, man. That is major production yeah. value, you know. <laughs> that is totally, yeah. yeah. That is, but it sounds like somebody's right there. Right, it's, right. it's a great yeah. little, like, goofy, secret, scary song. I love it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a song. It's part of the, it's probably the side of Kiss that I like the most is that sort of, um, you know, bigger than life, mystical, whatever kind of thing that they're always going for. And so, yeah, that's funny. That, yeah, I love that song, man. And yeah. then the last, the last point I'll make too, rather, you know, and I'll let, you know, Dave get into the lyric content, but it's interesting too that um, a band that uh, Gene Simmons worked with later, uh, Black and Blue, there's a song uh, that they released called Nasty Nasty, which includes the... Yes. And it also includes the riff um, that they later used in Domino. Right. But it, this is like, you know, four or five years later that that riff was, you know, you know, sort of, you know, utilized again you know but you know uh, you know 
then again, I think Gene produced that record, so he's got the right to use the riff again, right? He did. I'm, I'm sure Gene rationalized it. Well, nobody bought The Elder, so nobody knows that riff, right? I mean, right. Gene's never met a lyric or a riff that, you know, given the right time and place, he couldn't see fit to recycle, so. Yeah. And funny, let me tell a funny story. I have a friend that, uh, as a matter of fact, he was he is in the band Frankie and the Honeybees that I'm working with. Um, and he, uh, in the 80s, um, had, you know, there was interest from Gene Simmons about some of the stuff that they were doing, and you know, I, I won't even mention the song title name, but you know, I guess Gene was in the room and they were saying, well, Gene's like, well, what's, what songs do you have to record today? Let me hear what you have. And they, they mentioned the title and they, and they didn't play him any music. I just mentioned the title and he said, that's a hit. I can tell right away. That's a hit. I don't even need to hear it. Let's, let's do, let's go with it. So <laughs> again, okay. Gene, you know, was adaptable to all sorts of situations, I'm sure. And not afraid of, you know, revisiting riffs as we know from other Kiss records as well, from them using stuff in the Wicked Lester days on Kiss records as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, lyrically, I mean, I don't know if, I, if there's anything here I need to get into. I think it's interesting that uh, this is one of those songs where they pass off. Um, Gene is sort of taking the voice of perhaps Morpheus or, the, or one of the elders talking to the boy. And then the boy mm -hmm. himself is Paul Stanley who's singing the responses to that, you know. Um, oh, yeah. I can't believe this is true. Why do I listen to you? If I'm all that you say, then why am I still so afraid? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think that's interesting. We're really getting into the rock opera aspect of the concept album here, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And again, you know, when you revisit it you know, with that sort of, you know, viewpoint, again, it's really, it's a great record. It's a little heady for, you know, the average kid to get into. But, you know, if you want to sink your teeth into it, you know, there's a lot to delve into. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I find this perfectly for kids to delve into. This was like perfectly aimed at my 12 year old brain. This, <laughs> so, you right. know what I mean? Like, I see this as, like, I mean, you know. And okay, John, I, but I, you and I are the sons of English teachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. But I, I remember like just, I mean, again, I love <laughs> you because, yeah, I mean, your enthusiasm again probably is what made me really like this album. But, um, that's funny because I, this isn't, I listened, this was the same time, this is 82, this is the same time that someone is introduced, a, a border that my mother took on after my parents got divorced is introducing me to prog rock. Okay. Like at this, at this time, 81, 82. And suddenly I'm knee deep in King Crimson, Yes, and all that kind of stuff. Genesis. Um, and so this fit perfectly in that role, you know what I mean, of like concept album, whatever. But I would say that this is even more, um, less nonsensical than a lot of that Genesis and Yes and King Crimson, you know, concept album type, type stuff. This is a little more straightforward written. As you said, Mike, it's, it's got, it stays on a path Mm -hmm. where it's saying this is a story about a boy who gets a power and becomes powerful. So that was like the perfect 12-year-old, you know, thing for me to be listening to as I'm being introduced to like, you know, Yes and King Crimson and stuff like that. So it's, I, I think, I, it came at a perfect time for me to listen to it. That's why it's one of my favorite albums. And I have David to thank for it, but because uh, I definitely would have never found the album at all. You know, I it would have completely passed me by. Well, I admire the fact, John, that you were into that the stuff like you know, yes, and in prog rock at the time, because to me that was I couldn't even understand what was going on there. I was always the guy who was like, does it rock or does it not? I was into, you know, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, you know, the, the early right. Kiss records, that kind of stuff. And to me, that you know, the prog rock thing, I didn't get into 
two years later. Yeah. Um, well, it was, know, um, but either way, I was still yeah. a metalhead at heart. I mean, I still liked it. Yeah. And this is also the same time that I start hearing punk rock for the first time. You know what I mean? Like the, uh, you know, the dead Kennedys and things like that are starting to suddenly appear mm -hmm. and the Ramones on my radar. Um, but still not as, and, and I explained this to my son actually just recently, we had to go out and buy the albums. Yes. You know, if it wasn't on yeah. DVE or 3WS, we had to find, you know, the, the yeah. $9 and, or the $7 and 50 cents to purchase the album to hear it. It wasn't like your parents bought the family membership, the iTunes, and now you can literally listen to every single album I painstakingly bought and was disappointed by. Right. You know what I mean? And then continued to listen to, you know what I mean? So yeah. this was, this was a hard time to get it. When we were growing up, it was a hard time to sort of get into music. You went off of, you know, what people told you was good. Yeah. You know, yeah you didn't word, know. word of mouth. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can't, I, I read this damn review of this band called the Dell Lords and Rolling Stone or something back in like 85 or something. I freaking bought it. It, it was the <laughs> crappiest album I've ever owned in my entire life. And I blew like eight or nine bucks on it. I mean, to this day, I will still hold up that. I still held on to the cassette. It's like the worst album I've ever used my own money on because I was so mad. It's it's, like, it has to get better at some point. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it, now yeah. it's like, yeah, now I can listen to a review, read a review of something and then plug it right into iTunes and find it, you know, or look it up on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. You don't even have to bother. So yeah. never break out the pocketbook. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So at that time, it was very hard to sort of, if you were into, you know, punk rock, prog rock, you know, sort of obscure kiss, you had to make that step that you were going to go out and you were going to buy that record, you know? Mm -hmm. so. Oh, yeah. And also, too, from a, you know, a theme uh, point of view here. Um, one of the things they did on the the wall record was they would reintroduce uh, revisit the the in the flesh um, you know theme melody yes. guitar wise mm -hmm. and again um, in this song I think in the breakdown towards the end uh, they revisit the fanfare you know just a boy yes the dun, dun, uh, dun, 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 dun. yeah 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 all right so moving on to a kind of another mystical sounding song uh, with a really heavy sounding uh, chorus. Under the Rose, which is this the one that Eric Carr gets some writing credit on, I think? I believe so. I think it's noted that supposedly he wrote uh, much, if not most of the, the, the music for this one. Okay. From what I've read. Mm. Yeah. Oh, really? I did. Yeah, Wait, he's actually listed as, I don't know if this is in terms of priority and what you've contributed, but you know, when you look at the songwriting credits, it's Eric Carr dash Gene Simmons. Okay. Yeah. That's how it's written too here on the, yeah. here on the Wikipedia, which never lies. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that at all. That's definitely a great song too. It totally rocks. Um, it's got a pretty cool little spacey keyboard sequence in the middle with uh, and that huge cho chorus. I love that chorus. Will you sacrifice? You know, and all that kind of stuff. Again, totally. You know, it's my twelve-year-old lizard brain. Like I'm like, yeah. Yes, I, I will know. sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I will, man. What do you need? Let's go. <laughs> I'm in Reisenstein. I'm sacrificing every day. Right. <laughs> you guys had it tough in that school, man. I don't know. We did. I'm glad we I, did. I, I'm glad I didn't go to that school. High. You went to Woody High, though, right? Yeah, but all my friends were football players, so I could do no wrong. I could get away with anything. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, but I'm the only one that went there for three years, guys. <laughs> right, I got out. I found a magnet school as fast as I could. Uh, but hey, I pay, I pay my dues. All those football players, I taught how to play guitar, so you know, I helped them out. It was a, you know, yeah, I'll right. scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing, you know? 
I heard Woody High was just as rough. I heard that was just as. Uh... You know what? Yeah, I mean, not to get into personal, it, it was Swissville High School was cool, but Woody was just a, a you know, it was, yeah, a mess. It was a mess. I'm glad I only had to endure one year of it, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, yeah. It, it pays to have friends in low places. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. That'll be that'll be our other podcast. Yeah. It's very system. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, yeah. So I love I love the song. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. What were you going to say about it? Um, I was just going to say that uh, we hadn't mentioned that around the time uh, Bob Ezrin was simultaneously working on an album by a group named The Kings, and the, the name of the album was uh, Amazon Beach. Right. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, the opening of this album, you know, the the, the Kings album, uh, it starts with uh, a woman washing dishes, and then somebody gets into a vehicle, which in this case is a motorcycle and revs up the, the engine of the, of the motorcycle and takes off. Very similar to the beginning of Detroit Rock City on Destroyer. Right. Um, but it's also mentioned um, in interviews that apparently some of the guys that were in the group had done some uh, backing vocals on The Elder. Ah, okay. So I'm wondering if some of those voices in the, do you take the oath, you live? Is that somebody else other than, you know, the guys in Kiss or, or Bob Ezrin? Is that maybe something that they contributed to i don't know well there's a choir listed as being on the oh, that's true too, so it could be them but yeah that's true okay dude i just found that album on itunes i'm totally gonna listen to that now yeah it's it's really well produced i think you dig it really? um, okay i'm totally gonna yeah. do it there's a song um, called uh this looks like a lot of never mind okay i'm definitely gonna listen to it though but all right sorry yeah that's interesting you know but let me say this too you know it was mentioned you know in press you know before they were really working on this record they, they were going to do the next you know the next record is going to be the, you know the heaviest thing you've ever heard from kiss you know and again we compare that to songs like you know partners in crime and things that were being written at the time you know songs like only you and under the rose I and mean, they're really kind of I, I should say like i was remember i remember being like frightened by the chord structures and what's going on here and it sounds like these chanting sort of background vocals and you know kind of you know i was kind of afraid of the record in a way and it's heavy though and I think it comes across heavier than a lot of the stuff that was supposedly being considered for the record when they were considering doing a, you know, the heaviest record, you know, that you've ever heard from Kiss. Right. Mm -hmm. And then lyrically under the rose is uh, the English translation of the words, the Latin sub rosa, which oh. means secret. Right. Um, so if you're being, there's a legal term, if you're, if you're uh, observed sub rosa, that means like somebody's spying on you and you don't know it. Um, so, uh. you know, bearing that in mind, obviously there's the tie-in to Paul Stanley's rose and the rose mm -hmm. on the door knocker and all that. But, you know, what they're really saying is, will you live your life in secret? Um, again, uh. which works on multiple levels because that's what KISS has been doing uh, all these years that they're in a band never appearing without makeup is essentially living a double life, living their lives in secret. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's interesting, you know, the, the lyrics, loneliness will haunt you. Will you sacrifice? You know, how many hard rock bands were singing about hedonism, all of them, but how many of them were talking about living voluntarily living a life of loneliness and sacrifice? Not many, right? No, <laughs> no, yeah, which is you know a scary concept when you think about it. You know, 
you know, it's basically becoming an adult, which is, you know, a boy becoming a man. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a Bildensgruber or whatever they call it, coming of age tale. You oh. know. So that's the son of the English teacher me coming out. <laughs> So we flip the record over and we get to the first single from this record, which probably shouldn't have been because I don't know the wisdom yeah. of uh, putting out the ballad as the first single, but it was uh, the Lou Reed co-write A World Without Heroes. I don't see why that that's funny that you say that because I don't see why this is a the single at all. Like I don't find this uh, single worthy at all. Um, because it definitely, I mean, but did, isn't it, wait, this is World Without Heroes. Isn't this, it's got a definite 70s AM radio pop sound to it again. There's something about it with the way the, doom, 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 we're the world without, you know what I mean? It sounds like it's almost sort of like it could pass as like a hit. So I could sort of see that. It's definitely the non-mystical, you know, um, or hard rock and sound. It's sort of the most poppy on the album in terms of the ways it's produced. Um, I think even didn't Cher cover this song on an, at one point. She did. She did. Yeah. yeah. So there's other people that covered this that are pop artists. Um, I guess some other heavy metal band did it too, didn't? They? I don't know. I was reading in my research. Um, but so I could see why this would be the single. It's definitely the most produced of the songs on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess the counter argument is that you don't need to know the concept of the album to understand what the message of the song is, yeah. which is, you know, a world without yeah. heroes is a sad place and not the kind of place that you want to live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think definitely in terms of, you know, the, the, the pop aspect, uh, there's definitely like that Fender Rhodes, you know, uh, sort of like Billy Joel, um, just the way you are kind of keyboards in the background. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a technique that was used. Um, for sure. Um, and I do think that when they uh, were, appeared on Solid Gold, I think they lip synced to I, but then I do believe that they played the video for World Without Heroes. So I don't think it was something where they, I could be wrong. You might be right. Seeing... Um, and they have the, the shot of Gene, the tear coming from Gene's eye at the end, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it, it's this is, uh, this is also written by Lou Reed. It's got a Lou Reed credit on it, too. Oh, hmm. Yeah, I think apparently his uh, input on a lot of the, the songs where he had um, songwriting credit had to do with lyrical changes, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was a fixer, I think, wasn't he? Well. Which is, I mean, I don't know if he actually was. I don't know. I mean, Lou Reed is such a weird enigma. You know what I mean? I mean, he's, isn't he putting out metal machine music at the same time that he's doing this? You know what I mean? Like, he's definitely. I think so. Yeah, I don't know I what so. I mean, I, I think there's an argument to be made that this is a much more successful collaboration than that album that Metallica did. Uh <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually listened to that just because I could listen to that. Again, because we live in the age of, you know, iTunes where I wouldn't have to actually pay for it. And it's it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, yeah. Uh, but... Well, uh, well, it's interesting too with Lou Reed. I mean, their history apparently, you know, Kiss's history with Lou goes, you know, go back, goes back years. I think um, he was on bills with them in the early '70s, 
Uh, but then also too, we mentioned a guitar named uh, Valino that uh, I believe Ace used on Dynasty. Uh, Ace had Valino guitar number five, and apparently he bought it from Lou Reed. Okay. You know, and this is this is a guitar that they only made two hundred of, and you know the fact that Lou had number five and it wound up in Ace's hands, you know, later on, you know, shows that there was definitely a relationship years before they were working together um, on this album. Interesting. I've heard, yeah, and I've heard a st- long argument saying that Lou Reed is the first rock and roll sellout in the history of rock and roll sellouts. Like there was never a sellout until Lou Reed supposedly sold out, which I don't think he sold out. I mean, he didn't sell out. I mean, what it, the concept of selling out has definitely changed for me. I mean, I no longer pay much attention to that or don't, you know, and I'm now happy for bands getting larger audiences, but he is the guy that forsake his art roots to create, you know, to create walk on the wild side and other things like that. But again, you know, there's a definite, uh, you know, Walk on the Wild Side is definitely a weird-ass song, but no one really understands why that was a hit. Right. Because of its subject. Or as, as Gene so. would say, yeah, they, they said we were sellouts, and it's true. We sold out last night, <laughs> we sold out tonight, we're going to sell out tomorrow night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. You know, another Kiss connection, too, is uh, one of Lou's uh, you know, most recognized records is uh, the live album that had uh, Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter playing guitar, uh, particularly the well-known song is... Uh, Sweet Jane. So again, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. That, another tie in here. No, again, you know the musical community is is relatively small when you think about it. You bring in who you know, and um, I'm, I'm not surprised uh, that that worked out this way. But also too, in terms of guitars in this record uh, and then this song, I believe it's Paul Stanley playing the guitar solo, which you know is a great Paul Stanley guitar solo. I love it. Yeah, uh, it, it's 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 it sings. It sounds like a human voice kind of playing the guitar. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but, but then the last one I'll make about it is, and I wasn't aware of this until recently, um, if you compare this to uh, the John Lennon song, Working Class Hero, which has the lyric, a working class hero is something to be. Uh-huh. You know, there's a, de- you know, it's, there's, you know, a definite similarity there. Whether it was an influence or it was intentional or it was accidental, I don't know. But I find it interesting that, you know, there's, you know, a similar melody that's being used. Mm, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, neat idea. You know, at the same time, too, when um, we talk about whether or not the band, you know, was behind this as a product, I mean, you know, if you, again, reference the, the Friday's ap- appearance where they played this song live. Um, yeah, I think Paul, after he plays his solo, he's you know, sort of holding up the guitar in a proud way that he would, you know, which I'd be proud if I played that solo the way he did, too. But, you know, you can tell that they're behind these songs at the time. It's just a shame that that didn't carry off into additional success you know i think they were 100 percent behind it when it came out and it turned out to be something else and they just sort of retreated and said okay yeah they had to right because people didn't like it so they had to disown it i mean it's again you i've said this before and i'll say it again like being in a band is like constantly pulling your pants down you're like is this good is this good is this good and that constant fear that like you're going to create something that people don't like you know what i mean or create something generic like you're it's it's a guessing game you know so of course you know, we've all been in there and we've all spent our time making that work of art that we completely at first hate, mm-hmm. you know, because we spent so much time working on it. And then we got come back to it and we're like, wow, this is pretty good. So, I mean, I don't, there's nothing wrong with this album. It just didn't sell, you know, it just didn't hit at the right time for certain people. So I totally don't buy this. Like you said before, I don't buy that they were like not into it or whatever. I think they were all into it at the time, except for maybe Ace, yeah. mm-hmm. who still managed to like, you know, <clears throat> still managed to play the believing game enough to show up to deliver some pretty decent, you know, 
riffs and songs and solos. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I think they're they're just saying that to save face. Yeah, and think about this too in terms of promo when it comes to live performances on TV. I mean, early on they did. Um, oh, it wasn't Dick. It wasn't Don Kirsch. It was uh, Dick Clark's in concert. You know, which was around what seventy four, seventy five live performance raw, you know, no lip syncing. Um, when they did John Kirshner's rock concert in 76, that was lip synced. It was, you know, basically, basically like a video type thing, you know, and I don't think they've really done a whole lot of live TV appearances playing songs, you know, in front of, you know, an audience for TV until, you know, go from uh, Dick, Dick Clark's uh, in concert to Fridays. And then you have such an adventurous record and, you know, they chose these three songs and they, they you know, they come across in a great way on, on the Fridays appearance. So, you know, again, if you're not really behind an album and you have the, you know, the guts again to, to go out and play those songs, you know, in front of a live TV audience and have it be broadcast, you know, they knew what they were doing. You know, there's no question that they were behind these songs at the time, in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, moving on to Mr. Blackwell. I love that riff. Yeah, it's great, man. Um, you're not, yeah, you're not well for Mr. Blackwell. It definitely totally works really well. Um, the, uh, I, I actually thought this was sung by Ace, but apparently it's not at all. No, it's, that's Gene on vocals. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I took it as, for some reason, I always thought it was sung by, and again, I'll go back to the thing that I did write down, the truth about this crummy hole, and there's some great lyrical stuff in it as well um, that make it stand out. Um, I wish there was more buildup to explaining who Mr. Blackwell is. I mean, you get just get it from the idea that he is the villain or he is the guy who runs, you know. I don't really know who Mr. Blackwell is, I guess is the best way to put it. I guess he stands in for the villain or is the person on the island, which of course we don't realize that they're mm -hmm. on an island until the next, you know, the Escape from the Island song and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's still really good lyrics, but I wish it had explained more about who he was. Uh, but then that's always my problem with <clears throat> my problem with horror novels in general, which I know makes no sense to you guys now where I'm going with this, but it's <sighs> the evil guy. They, they never explain evil well enough. Uh -huh. They always just say it's uh -huh. evil, you know. And so I understand that Mr. Blackwell is evil, but why is he evil? What is he doing? So I sort of want more detail. I want, I want to, you know, there's Darklight and Mr. Blackwell, which are only really the two that deal with what the boy has to deal with. Yes. And there's almost part of me that wishes there were more songs to explain what he has to do. Because the other sort of negative song is Escape from the Island, because obviously the word escape and the klaxon sounds that are being played as he's, as he's running. But hmm. I almost wish that there was more description of what he's doing. We know he's supposedly going through trials, but that's only based on things that I've read about the album rather than actually from what I've learned from listening to the album. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, just, that's totally valid. I, like I said, yeah. if there's a criticism of the album. It's that it's not the whole story and it's, it's right. very short on plot specifics. Um, but having said that, establishing him as the evil being, the Darth Vader, right. the Grinch, whatever. They do it with- The Dr. Righteous. The Dr. Yeah. Righteous, yes. They do yeah. it with some uh, very clever lyrics. Um, you know, the whole, yeah. we'll drink to sorrow, then we'll drink to waste. We'll drink a yeah, that is a great line. to the yeah. human race. Here's to the world and the times we're in. Here's to the kid, a real man among men. 
you know, I mean, there is a, a cleverness to the to the evil, the way that they're, uh, you know, he's making a toast to his adversary in a, in a mm-hmm. way, you know, which is um, it's so kind of darkly cynical and and I mean, really, it reminds me of Trump. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, and musically, it's really interesting, too. There's all kinds of weird off time, like things going on in the song musically that just make it sound like, you know, evil forces are at work and the furniture's moving by itself. And uh, (laughs) yeah. But it's also got you know, a lot of those classic gene elements. I mean, just the riff itself. You can tell that's a, that's a gene riff. You know, I could see him playing that in a ton of other songs. Oh, yeah. Then I love, you know, the in the chorus. It has that cool, that super, like, boom, boom, bass part to it. Yeah, it's got that really weird, um, like, super heavy bass part, right? And there are also a lot of just, you know, sound effect, you know, bass notes, yeah. you know, like similar to what he would do in a live, uh, you know, blood spitting uh, bass solo as mm. well, like distortion and echo and da da da. Good point. And, and there's also, uh, you know, uh, much used um, in a beneficial way, the uh, Bob Ezner approach to guitars and tuning them slightly out of tune. Okay. Um, I think in the chorus, you got that. That whole section, you know, those, the guitars there, you know, slightly out of pitch with each other, and it creates like a, a weird, unsettling atmosphere. Mm. Uh, but then, too, when you get into like just the breakdown, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of you know lyrics, you know, it, there's you know discussion of dialogue in this record. That to me, I hear, and I wish I could tell what they're saying, but like in that breakdown where there's you know, all this sort of stuff going on, to me, you can't tell me there's some definitely some dialogue that they're reading, but we you'll never be able to hear it by listening to the record and, and to know what, what they're saying there. Yeah. You know what I mean, Dave? I do. And yeah, what you're referring to, there was there is some dialogue at the end of the record, but there was a lot more mm-hmm. that was recorded that was supposed to be interspersed throughout the whole album um, that eventually just got thrown out. And unfortunately, it seems to be lost to the ages. Yeah. Yeah. And... Interesting point too, musically, um, if you listen to the solo on this song, it uh, is very reminiscent of Ace's solo on Strange Ways with like the weird kind of, you know, fuzzed out, you know, phased guitar and, you know, it's, it's a really thick sound. It, to me, it's like Ace saying, okay, well, you know, okay, I got the, I got the solo on this and I got the idea, here we go, and, and there it is. You know? Another great Ace noise solo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Escape from the Island, the first Kiss, I guess you could say fanfare is an instrumental, but uh, really the first Kiss musical instrumental since Love Theme from Kiss on the first album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it creates an interesting soundscape with the klaxon and the, you know what I mean, and the sort of... But the it, sirens, it, yeah. Yeah, the sirens, it sounds very sort of uh, uh, movie soundtrack-ish. You know what Theatrical, I mean? yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it definitely it doesn't totally grab me, but it's still cool. Yeah, I mean, cool, so, cool solo by Ace. I, I believe that's Ace, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it's it's Ace. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's Ace. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're um, an expert, Mike. You can. <laughs> well, you know, I, there are certain licks that he does that you know, and there's certain licks that he, that he doesn't do, and. These sound like all the licks that he would do to me. Sure. Um, but this is also a Bob Ezrin co-write, right? Uh, is it? Let's double check that. Yeah, um, we got Ace, Bob Ezrin, and Eric Carr. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I think I read something too where Bob Edwards said that he was working on this. It might have just been you know Ace Eric and, and Bob, and I think Bob played. Uh, he claims he played bass on this track. Yeah, I have I have read that. I've I've you know there, there I've read different things about who played bass on certain tracks, but you know this is one of okay. the tracks that Bob may have played bass on. And I find it interesting too that they go with a sort of you know Bo Diddley beat before the solo. You know, it's an interesting thing to, to introduce to a Kiss record. You know, boom, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum. yeah. yeah. Um, well, what else am I going to say about this song? Um, oh, here's my question. We talk about different sequences and stuff. Uh, is this song not on the Japanese LP release that came out at, at the time of the initial release of this record, or was it just not listed? It's not. It's sold as a. It's it's not. It supposedly was put on it as a B side to something. Yeah. Okay. And then on the re-release, right, so, they added it back in. Yeah. When they put out the CD, they put it. They put it in. Okay, no, I, I realized too, we, we talked about that, but I realized too that when you look at the, the US release, yes, it is on the actual vinyl LP, but it's not listed in the track listing on the back of the record. Oh, really? That's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. My question would be, you know, were there ever any lyrics that were written for this song? Yeah. Debate, you know, you will never know. Yeah, I mean, the title... Uh, Again, it's 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 vague enough that you kind of have to fill in the blanks, and you know, I guess they go sailing to an island, perhaps, and at a certain point they have the to fight Mr. Blackwell. They and, have to escape from said island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you know, them adding the sirens at the beginning, you know, signifies that they're trying to escape something. So I guess right. you know, they could they could have had this as instrumental and turned it into you know a, a theme for the record, you know, to tie in. Right. Uh, but here's the other point I was going to make too. Mm. Um, I don't know how much of a fan of, uh, I'm a big fan of Adam and Adam and the Ants, particularly Adam's guitar player, Michael, Marco Peroni. Okay. Um, those sort of riffs like in between the chords. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The sort of muted. It, it's very, you know, uh, Adam and the Ants, Kings of the Wild Frontier style, you know, guitar playing where it's not really even a chord. You're just sort of you know, doing this rhythmic pattern by muting the strings and, and strumming it. Yeah. You know, was that something that they heard at the time because those records were coming out at the same time? You know, I've not heard this really on a Kiss record before, but being a fan of um, Adam Ant's recordings at the time as well, I found it interesting that there was a sort of, you know, a parallel there. Yeah, I'd, I'd buy that. I'm sure they were aware of Adam and the Ants, for sure. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But yeah, but, you know, it's fun. You know, it, again... I mean, it's really an A song without being an A song because he's not really singing any lyrics, but he's got a he's got a badass solo on it. So good for him. Yeah. Moving on to Kiss's first stab at orchestral metal, I guess you would call it, uh, Odyssey. Think piano. <laughs> Right, right. Okay, right. It starts with, it opens the, oh, there's a line in there, child in a uh, sundress looking at a rainy sky. I thought was that was pretty cool. I liked it. I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, again, lyrically, it's some of the best stuff I've ever seen Kiss do. I don't know if they actually wrote that, um, but still, it's pretty interesting how they pulled it off. Um, I'm trying to think about how it goes, though. That's the problem. It opens with the piano. Go ahead, Mike. You probably know better than I do. I remember. I, I like the lyrics and I like the little piano thing. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's a big, powerful uh, song. So again, I guess this falls under the sort of this is the bad stuff that's happening 
uh, you know, Mr. Blackwell, Dark Light, The Odyssey. I mean, an odyssey is a journey, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and he, and they, they state that he's going on this odyssey at the end, I think. The odyssey begins is the last words written on the interior uh, gatefold cover, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. So this is his... Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it, but again, it, it sort of it muddies the plot a little bit, but whatever. I mean, who has writing credits for this one? Uh, this is uh, Tony Powers, uh, who co-wrote part of The Oath. Yeah. yeah. But Tony Powers has sole writing, uh, sole uh, songwriting credit on, on this song. He later released a version uh, that he recorded, but I don't think there were any recorded versions before Kiss released theirs. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I... I it's interesting how perfectly this song fits into the album, but mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if it was a song that he had before that they, because I seem to remember reading something about that. I don't know that the song was written for the album. I think I don't think it was. I think Paul or Bob knew Tony, and they they heard that song and they said. You know, we could use that and they brought him into it. Yeah. Because obviously, yeah. Which is interesting yeah. because lyrically it fits in so perfectly with the album and yet actually was probably written before having nothing to do with the album. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I know that Paul was not happy with the way his vocals came across on this song. Um, you know, that he was going for something that was kind of quasi operatic and he didn't feel that he, necessarily achieved what he was going for um it doesn't bother me i i i, I love this song um you know again this is another one of those songs kiss songs we talked about the running theme of of destiny and mm -hmm. uh you know that's mentioned a couple of times on this album but seek and you shall find your destiny uh and on uh is that on only you or under the rose i don't remember but um it's under the rose. Under the yeah. rose. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, on here when 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 you have the lyrics, once upon not yet long ago, someday, countless times we've met, met along the way. I always think about all the times that I've met Kiss. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, because yeah. there is that. Um, those experiences, when we've been lucky enough to have them, there there is that that almost surreal aspect to it. When as it's happening, you're kind of pinching yourself, saying, "Is this really happening right now to me?" And and uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant song. I, I love. I know the lines you're talking about, John. The uh, there's a child in a sundress looking at a rainy sky. There's a place in the desert where an ocean once danced by. There's a song mm -hmm. in the silence weaving in and out of time. We are notes in the music searching for remembered rhyme. I mean, those are some beautiful yeah, lyrics. Yeah, heavy duty stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> even, even on a mountain high somewhere where only heroes dare stand the stallion and the mare. We have been and we shall be each other's destiny one another's odyssey i mean obviously odyssey is is primarily known for the homerian odyssey is one of the earliest great stories that we still have from the greeks and whatnot but um for a song that was created independently of this album i think it gives the rest of the album a whole lot of 
philosophical depth and and resonance that it might not otherwise have. I I agree, and also when you think about it, I mean, it, it, thematically it fits for sure. And had you or had Kiss gone with the original track listing, this would have been track three. You would have gone from Fanfare to Just a Boy, okay, into Odyssey, which you know, again yeah. I think that track order works better in terms of a storytelling perspective but you know it is what it is but yeah i mean it just as great as those lyrics are too they're supported by those great chord changes there's those you know i call them like those piano chords you know that there's so, so much drama behind those chords you know and you know that's why i don't know songwriting is such an art and you know, anybody can do the, you know, the, the three chord, you know, rock thing, but, you know, Kiss, you know, this is basically a piano ballad and they're backing it up with, you know, loud guitars. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, that, that guitar solo in, in on this song, which I have no idea who that is, if it's Paul or Ace or somebody else, but, you know, it's a dramatic moment. When I put on this record in my car and I crank it up, tears, I mean, it's, there's drama in this song. I love it. You know, when you can create that much passion and emotion in a song that you know you didn't write yeah but you delivered that way man you know that's that that is a true artist that is somebody that can say you know maybe you don't need to know the depth you know the, the background of you know where the song came from or who wrote it but we're going to present it to you in a way that's going to you know resonate with you I, I admire that there is definitely something about this song that makes the hairs on the back of my head stand up and and you know gives me goosebumps mm -hmm. where it's it's like oh oh this is this is something important and and moving yeah. and uh yeah yeah I, I think you're absolutely right the the voice chord leading stuff is 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 great this great dramatic tension um mm -hmm. i believe it's alan schwartzberg on drums on this not eric carr yeah because i think he's on another track as well but we'll get into that soon right yes um but you know point two about the vocal thing you know you know, I joked on on the, the the 78 Paul Stanley solo album where my mom, you know, if I was listening to the Paul Stanley solo record, she said, why is he singing like he is on Hold Me, Touch Me? You know, she might say the same thing about this song. But then again, um, when Paul was performing as uh, the lead in Phantom of the Opera in Toronto, uh, me, my mom, and my sister Jen traveled up there to see one of those shows. And it's interesting because that was a, a different vocal approach that you wouldn't expect from Paul, but it was very similar to his approach uh, to sing in the song Odyssey on this record. His voice kind of had that that sound to it, which was some, wasn't something that you were used to or would have expected from, but it worked. Well, that's interesting you know, so that you say that because I just heard an interview, I believe it was uh, with Bob Ezrin being interviewed by Dot, um, Eddie Trunk, and he was mm -hmm. saying that in a lot of ways, the elder was the basis for forming the foundation uh, for Paul's approach to singing that allowed him to then go on and be so brilliant in doing Phantom of the Opera. Okay. Wow. Well, um, you know, my God, and that was what, 30 years <laughs> after The Elder came up, right? It was at least that long. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I like, to me, I love this song. I love chord changes. I like drama in music. Um, you know, and you got that just that wonderful, you know, soaring guitar solo, which reminds me again, Dave, your production on. Um, you know, who are you lately? It, there's, you know, again, I, I've mentioned that, you know, with the Dame Fortune records that there are parts of those records that remind me of my favorite moments on albums that were recorded by my favorite artists. And, you know, I applaud your work, your work on that and, and, and you know, sort of guiding us through that. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. 
Moving on to the final song on the album. Actually, I got to say about this song, probably my favorite Kiss song, probably my favorite song of all time. This is I. Uh, it's the greatest song on the album. I mean, I, I love it. It's one of my favorites. Still play it to this day, pull it up. It's on a playlist of mine for driving long distances. I mean, it's a, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's, it's definitely them trying to appeal to the 12 and 13 year olds in their um, fan base. You know what I mean? To get them excited. I'm interested. What, this was released as a single, right? I mean, it didn't go anywhere, did it? I mean, yes and no. So now we get into yeah. a really interesting thing. Um, they, they're, they filmed a video for this song that wasn't ever released. Um, mm -hmm. And it's actually just gotten out to the public within the last couple of years. I think Julian Gill bought the master off of mm. somebody on an eBay auction. And now it's, you can find it on, uh, on YouTube. Um, so the actual video that they shot for this, um, this song, they, they built this really interesting set for it with all these kind of almost crystal like um, cave like stalactite things that look kind of like um, Superman's Fortress of Solitude in the 1978 Christopher Reeve Superman yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. then they perform to an audience that looks like they stepped out of Studio 54. I mean, they are clearly not KISS fans, and yet they're behaving, you know, wildly enthusiastically towards the song, which does make it a little bit cheesy. But this was 1981. There were certainly much cheesier things being shown on MTV, right? I mean, music video was in its infancy. Um, I think if they had put this song out as the first single and really pushed it and put this video on MTV, um, I think the whole story of The Elder could have gone a completely different way. Yeah, I agree because it's definitely one of the strongest, if you want to call it, you know, one of the strongest rock quote unquote songs on the album as well. Like you, did, you didn't have to delve into the concept of the record in order to enjoy this song. You know, you could just play it and think of it as a sort of, you know, self-supporting, you know, self, you know, motivating song and enjoy the lyric and enjoy the riff. And, you know, it, it sells itself in a way. Um, but I think some of the problems with in the videos, I read something too, where I guess uh, Polygram, who you know, were their label at the time, I think they had some issues with MTV basically thinking that MTV should be paying the artists in order to air these videos. So maybe there was some pushback from Polygram to say, well, you know, we've got these songs and if we're not going to be compensated for you guys playing these songs on, you know, on your channel, then you're not going to get our artists. Yeah. So they may have shot themselves Which is a shame. in the foot. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. entirely possible. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a song about the power of self-belief, which is obviously mm -hmm. something that, that Gene and, and Paul both have, uh, proselytized about in interviews and in other songs and, you know, kisses a living example of, uh, how far that, that self-belief can take you in, in life and in terms of success. Um, a great, another great trade-off in, in vocals between Gene and Paul. Um, you know, I, yeah. I love some of the lyrics. Uh, ain't no pretending, ain't no make-believe. I've got to be the one. I've got to do what must be done. You know, I mean, yeah. 
you know, even the chorus, when, it, when they say, you know, I believe in me, I believe in something more than you can understand. That's a heavy yeah. line. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. um, I love Paul Stanley does a little nod to Elvis with the way that he sings the whole verse of, I don't need no money, I don't need yeah. no fame. Yeah, that that's great. Um, yeah. You know, and the Gene thing that he sings perfectly about, uh, I don't need to get wasted, it only holds me down. You know, mm -hmm. again, lots of rock bands out there at the time singing about partying and indulging and drugs and alcohol. You know, for them to come out and say, I don't need to get wasted, a bold, mm -hmm. a bold move. And, you know, the, the final lines, it's interesting. There's two versions of the song, right? There's the version on the album. I just need a will of my own and the balls to stand alone. Yeah. Right. And then when they performed it and when they did the, uh, right. the performance on solid gold, they played to a track and they said, I just need the guts to mm. stand alone. Um, Cause I guess balls was, considered a dirty word right <laughs> well yeah i guess you know it, it's, it's a five letter word but nonetheless you know, it's not a four letter word so you know yeah but either way yeah i mean you know well it's interesting that all of up until this point all of kiss's anthems rock and roll all night uh um and shout it out loud seem to involve creating parties you know what I mean? There's not a lot of mm. lyrical precedence before this in songs about self-belief that they write. They always seem to sort of mask it in the concept of uh, saying F you to everything around you and going and partying. Or not even just partying, just hanging out with your friends or whatever. I mean, shout it out loud, isn't Well, I would, maybe, maybe Flaming Youth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um... So yeah, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Although it's interesting, the, the very last line that Gene sings in the song before the end of the song is he says, I want to rock and roll all night. Right, and right, they, yeah. Uh -huh. Which is kind, yeah. kind of brings everything home full circle. It was an right. interesting choice yeah. for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's sampling himself. Essentially, <laughs> before sampling was a thing, yeah. 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 <laughs> right, exactly. I believe that word is homage, right? An homage to yourself. Yes. <laughs> Only Gene Simmons could do an homage to himself. Um, so yeah, but no, it definitely is a great song. Again, totally aimed at my 12 year old brain about being able to stand alone and stand up for myself and all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, a great song. Now again, not necessarily an absolutely perfect Kiss song, um, because again, it doesn't mention partying. It doesn't, you know what I mean? And they tell you not to do drugs, you know? So I don't know. I, I, but again, a great song. One of their greatest that they've ever written, I would argue. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, when you, you mentioned John, uh, songs like Shout Out Loud and more of their, you know, anthem type songs, it's definitely a little more inward focused. Um, mm -hmm. and not necessarily, you know, in terms of a group or being with friends or, you know, celebrating with, you know, people other than yourself. Um, I see the point there too. Um, but I always had a question about this song. Yeah. You know, in the end, we mentioned the, you know, I want to rock and roll night, which is, you know, Gene. And then there's the do you do you, the classic Paul, you know, vocal at the end as well. Yeah. But before that, there's somebody yells uh, the words, come on. And to me, that either sounds like Gene or it sounds also like Eric Carr, oh, which okay. apparently Eric Carr is not on this track playing drums. Again, it's Alan Schwarzenberg, apparently, although obviously yeah. he played it live on Fridays and yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but then again, too, when you compare this to the, the Friday's performance, they don't do the call and response, I, I, believe me. They just go, I believe in me and I, you know, they, they yeah. sort of skip that part of the. I always wondered, too, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard for them to do that with just a delay. You know, if they just, it, it oh. wouldn't sound exactly like the record, but I mean, they could get something close to that call and response effect if they just ran, you know, just ran the, the first I through a delay, right? That's true, but I mean, I will say this, you know, I've been in, in tribute bands before and we've, we, you know, at the time we, we played songs like The Oath and we, we, we played I and just singing that chorus over the, the I, you know, chord structure, it, it's tough to do. So maybe it's something that they thought, well, we're going to, we're going to sort of, you know, truncate this and make it easier for us to present it live. It's a, it's a tricky thing to do. Well, you, you and know, I because... actually have played it live together. In a, well, in that's a... <laughs> true too, yeah. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's the timing of it is, is a little nutty. I, I, you know, it is. So I can see where it is, but yeah. but you know, I will say this: they played it on one of the Kiss cruises that I wasn't at. I was mm -hmm. only on one, and I don't have that many regrets in life. But <laughs> the, the fact that I was not there to hear yeah. them play this song live, you know, if there's any song that I want them to add in the final final yeah. of the end of the road farewell tour. I think it's time to put this song in the set, you know, yeah. I, I mean, really. And so then after I, we have the, uh, the dialogue, the remaining dialogue between uh, the elder and Morpheus or one of the elders and Morpheus, I suppose. Yes. Which kind, kind of sets it up for the, the idea that, yeah, this boy's looking pretty good. Maybe he's going to be able to pull it off and defeat the evil and, tune in next week for war of the gods <laughs> yeah i mean it definitely ties the story in in a way um you know and whatever that next you know that next portion is going to be you know we never really got to to see that part of it but um you know again i believe these are some of the people that are listed on the back of the other of the, you know the original release you know which again we're not really you know they never listed the band members in the back of the, of the album itself but you know i always thought that one of the voices uh, in that out, outgoing dialogue would have been Gene Simmons, because I always thought it was Gene doing the news uh, broadcast on the intro to Detroit Arc City. I could see, I mean, that I could see like, why you would think that could be him, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but then again, I read too that Bob Ezrin claims he was the one reading the newspaper for that, you know, I don't know. But it, to me, it, this is almost, to me, sounds like something that Gene would have done in terms of dialogue. I can hear his voice coming through there, but, you know, if it's not him, you know, so be it. I thought it was Gene as well, but none yeah. of us actually know the truth. Well, you know, in, in uh, uh, Julian Gill's uh, book, you know, uh, Odyssey, which, you know, outlines a lot of the, the work on the elder, uh, there were interviews with some of the, the people that recorded dialogue for this record. And, you know, they, they claimed to be the ones that were, you know, on the final release. Yeah, which, by the way, hats yeah. off to Julian for that book. It's a great, great uh, look at the elder for sure. Absolutely. You know, but interesting point, too, about... Um, you know, this possibly being, uh, you know, uh, either a double record or, you know, um, becoming, a, you know, a, this, the, the soundtrack to a movie. Um, but there was, I read something too that I wasn't aware of. Apparently, you know, believe it or not, uh, there was some sort of agreement between, you know, Kiss and Bob Ezrin supposedly where Kiss were going to unmask for this record. I guess if they were going to appear in, in videos or you know, if they're going to appear in the movie, if that ever came about, then they would, they would unmask. And I guess supposedly, you know, Kiss changed their mind and said, you know, we're not going to unmask for this record. And Bob, you know, 
you know, was, you know, bothered by that. But it would have been interesting to think about it because, you know, the previous album was Kiss Unmasked and had they unmasked on the record after Unmasked, it would have been sort of you know, the precursor of what would have happened here. But somehow they, you know, decided to, you know, keep wearing the makeup and, you know, changing their costumes and, you know, cutting their hair and, you know, making themselves you know, appear differently in a way. Yeah, which um, I, we should I, mention that too, because they went from their biggest, glossiest, most colorful Vegas-like costumes, uh, yeah. you know, with the big fur green things on Peter's shoulders and all that, to uh, this very stripped down kind of much sleeker, smaller look. Um but it was actually a pretty dark, heavy look. It, in some ways, it was a return to the original leather and studs of uh, the original uh, costumes from the early 70s. True. Yeah, you look at Ace's costume around 74, 75 was a one-piece, you know, leotard with some, some rings around it. And he goes, he's basically just wearing it, you know, a leotard with some lightning bolts on it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the costumes, you know, at the time... You know, looking back on it, definitely appear of the period in a bit dated, like Eric's costume with you know all the zippers and stuff, and yeah, you know whatever Paul's wearing as as a shirt that looks kind of like a garbage bag. I don't know what that was all about, but you know, <laughs> I think you know, I think Gene's way. costume holds up pretty good. It does, yeah, it does, because I think he might even use parts of that for um, later appearances on the Creatures of the Night tour. At least it looks similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I guess we should sum up final thoughts about the elder uh weird aside um the costumes that are used for the elder there's a picture of uh kiss in an it's an introduction to art book that i was reading as a teacher uh -huh. and there's a picture of them in those um in those elder costumes and they talk about um you know, costuming is a type of art and you know what I mean? It's like introducing mm -hmm. it instead of showing like a, a musical or, you know, some sort of something like that, they show a picture of Kiss wearing their costumes from the elder. Ah. And I always wanted to, this is pre cell phone, be able to take a picture thing. I wanted to like show the world this and now I can never, I can't find it again. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, final thoughts. It's a great album. Again, uh, it's one of my favorite Kiss albums. I've never considered it to be not a great Kiss album, um, but uh, again, I think a lot of that. You know, I just I this was perfectly aimed at my brain when you introduced me to it, um, and um, I almost wish that there was an Elder too. I wish they would like own it. You know, I wish Kiss mm -hmm. would just say, "Yeah, we did it, and it was our experiment, and here you go." Yeah, you know, but it's. Um, yeah, I just, I wish they would just own it. That's all I got to say. I mean, I know that everybody says they supposedly hated it, but had they been at a different record label or something like that, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, run into the same sort of stuff. Um, for me, I, I, you know, I enjoy rediscovering this record. Um, I particularly now enjoy rediscovering the original sequence, which is on the remaster that came out, I think, 96 or 97. Um, you know, it, it to me it sounds like a band. It sounds like you know, Kiss playing on a record with you know either you know symphonies or you know choirs or sound effects. I mean, it never you know, it doesn't sound like it, it's it's somebody else playing you know their instruments and and not Kiss doing their thing. Um, but I think also too, you know, it's 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 interesting when you think of how much you know catalog they have. I mean, here we have like Dynasty, Unmasked, 
and the elder or music from the elder and you may, maybe what how you know in terms of later set lists you know they've played i was made for loving you and that's about it when you know in terms of songs that would, would be in, in future set lists so you know, you've got this whole catalog of, of albums and you've got three albums where you know not because there aren't good songs on the records but they weren't songs that were you know um recognized in, as, as being a single yeah you've got all this catalog that is being underutilized is what i'm saying but it, it's still all great stuff yeah you know, which is a, a true you know tribute to them as as an artist i mean you know they're just you know they get they never get the, the recognition they deserve in terms of being songwriters uh and musicians or singers and you know there's just so much to discover um that doesn't get recognized and it, it's a bit of a shame but you know lucky for us you know we can appreciate it as, as kiss fans absolutely you know i think it's really interesting um the, the whole style of them playing music. I mean, you made some interesting points about the, some of the musical connections between uh, the song Dark Light and, and a couple of the songs on Unmasked. But in general, mm -hmm. the whole style of playing uh, from Unmasked to The Elder is completely different. It's like almost a yeah. 180 in terms of how they're approaching just playing the guitar for and arranging mm -hmm. these songs. Um, you know... I know this is a very divisive album and some Kiss fans think it's just the worst thing ever. But I think that it's one of those albums that those who know, know. And those that appreciate mm -hmm. it really love it. Um, there are Kiss albums that are kind of like sister albums, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think Unmasked is kind of a sister album to Dynasty. And I think... Asylum is kind of a sister album to Animalize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Love Gun is kind of a sister album to Rock and Roll Over. I think you could eliminate any one of those three albums from the band's catalog, and you would lose some great songs, but they would essentially still be the same band, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but I think that this album is pivotal because it really, it gives a depth and a resonance to things that they had hitherto for only hinted at the whole idea of believing in yourself of becoming all that you have the potential to be of being the hero in your own life um you know the whole mystical aspect of kiss you know you think of the 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 line from kiss meets the fan of the park wouldn't it be cool if we all had talismans and 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 paul says but we people do melissa they just don't realize it yet this is mm -hmm. in a way of this is kiss passing the baton from themselves to the fans saying you think we're larger than life superheroes well you can be that too because inside you lies infinite potential all you have to do is find your true destiny in life to make that happen and that's a beautiful thing. That's a powerful yeah. message. And it's a message that not everybody is going to hear or understand. But if you look at the, the way that this album has resonated with the people that do understand it, there have been multiple plays, high school mm -hmm. musicals, board games, comic books, a guy who tried to was going to make a movie of it. Mm -hmm. um, there there's an article i found online basically saying you know look at the matrix with morpheus mm. and neo the chosen one 
tell me they didn't already make the elder movie. And mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things about how vague uh, this concept is, you could make a dozen more elder movies and never repeat yourself because, mm -hmm. you know, because it's, it's, it's just the cycle of the hero with very few specifics. And, um, you know, even the Kiss Mini Golf, right? They rebuilt the door. How many people uh, have have put their hands on that door, uh, just like Paul did on on the cover of the album, as a sign, mm -hmm. as a symbol? There's from from the band themselves that you know. There's pictures of Ace there. There's pictures of you know everybody that goes there puts their hand on that. It's like touching the Blarney Stone, and <laughs> and taking your picture, and um, so I'm I'm so glad that this this album exists. Um, and I, I think without it, Kiss wouldn't be the band that they are today. Yeah, I can't follow that up. Good job. That says it all. <laughs> yeah. Basically yeah. does. Yes. Uh, um, final, final thought. I'd like to dedicate this episode, uh, to memory of Ron Bear Jones. Uh, he was Kiss's bus driver. He just passed away from COVID and, um, interesting story about him gloria stefan he was gloria's driver and he was in a car accident that was no fault uh of of his own but she was seriously injured she broke her back and he was injured he stayed with her when she went to the hospital um and he had a hard time finding work after that accident kiss was the first band to hire him and the story goes that uh when he was going driving that same stretch of road where he had the accident the entire band in 1990 was with them there uh the whole time for moral support because it was a heavy thing for him to be doing that uh driving on that road again mentally and uh so i like to think of our boys as doing things like that and being somewhat heroic themselves um and uh this one goes out to Bear. Uh, if anybody sees, I think it's Kiss Exposed. There's uh, there's some pretty classic footage of him there too. He he seems like a great guy and, and quite a character. Um, next week we will take a look at the four original songs on Kiss Killers. Killers. So join us for that. Everybody have a great safe week. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. All right. Take care.